From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It was a journey, 60 years in the making, to honor her late mother. What I thought about was all of the different people there from across the country and different ethnicities and the friendliness of people and the people helping one another, looking out for one another. We were all on the same page. We'll talk with retired Denver judge Diane Briscoe about the March on Washington anniversary festivities she attended and what's next in the fight for civil rights as racial violence continues to erupt in America today. I literally just sat on the bed and cried. And I thought, why am I crying? And I thought, I'm crying for all of humanity. Because when is this going to end? When are we going to do something about all of the hatred in this country and hatred even in the world for people that are different than ourselves? Every day, Colorado Public Radio works to deliver you meaningful news and music, using the power of the human voice in all its forms, so you can build a deeper connection to your community. To do that, CPR relies on your support. Join CPR's membership community for the first time as a monthly donor, and your Evergreen membership will be the gift that keeps on giving, supporting the resource that keeps you listening. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We recently spoke with retired Denver County Court Judge Diane Briscoe about her plans to travel to Washington, D.C. to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. It was a journey she took in honor of her mother, civil rights activist Ruth Cousins Denny, who attended the original march back in 1963. The event is widely considered a hallmark of the American civil rights movement. And of course, it's also where famed civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech, arguably one of the most famous speeches in history. Well, Judge Briscoe is back and she joins us now with an update on all that she experienced during the anniversary festivities. Judge Briscoe, thanks for joining us again. And thank you for having me back. Now, this may be a hard question to start with, but what adjectives come to mind that best describe your experience in D.C.? Exhilarating, Mm. um, exciting, interesting. Can't think of another. Was it emotional? Yeah, it was was emotional. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, it was emotional. What was going through your mind as you stood in that crowd? What I thought about was all of the different people there. Mm. from across the country and different ethnicities and all of the different organizations that were represented. There were just numerous organizations represented. And the friendliness of people and the people helping one another, looking out for one another, we were all on the same page. I also read that people had on I Have a Dream t-shirts and also heard that it was really hot as well. It was very, very hot. <laughs> it was, I, I've heard the saying, women don't sweat, they perspire. I sweat <laughs> it. was so hot. Was there a sort of a spirit of, you know, that just kind of hung in the air? There was. There was a spirit of joy. I, I would say a spirit of love and oneness. It was just so upbeat, and people were cooperating with each other, watching out for each other. A woman came up to me after I'd been there for hours 
And I think she saw that I was kind of wilting in the heat. Mm. And she said, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm okay. And she said, would you like some water? And I said, sure, because she was one of the volunteers. They were walking around handing water out. Wow. And she came just in time. I think they're watching the crowd to see, is everybody okay? Because we were out in the sun, most most of us. Some people were in the shade, but I got there early. I think there were two young women there who said they got there before the sun came up because they were worried about getting a seat. They were from Brooklyn, New York, and so I sat with them. The sun had just come up, so we had quite a conversation. What other interesting people did you meet out there? On the other side of me later, two women came. They were from North Carolina, and I talked with both of them a lot. And then what I did, I decided if I stayed in my seat, I wasn't going to be able to meet a lot of people. So I would tell my, uh, I'm going to call them seatmates, that I was leaving for a little while and watch my bag, and I would get up and wander around in the crowd and talk to different people. So I made it a point to talk to people of different ethnicities. There, were, there was a group of Chinese people holding up a sign that said, I am not a terrorist and I am not a spy. Mm. I'm Chinese. And I went up to her and I said, may I take a picture of you with your sign? And she said, yes, I made this sign myself. Well, it's really interesting because, of course, we look at the civil rights movement largely as addressing inequality, in, particularly in terms of African-Americans. But it is a universal message of equality. And it sounds like that was the theme. There were people from all backgrounds there acknowledging their support of that belief. That That's correct. There were people, there was a Hispanic guy there holding a sign. And I went up to him and I said, do you mind if I take a picture of you with your sign? And he said, no, please take a picture. I'm trying to remember exactly the same. And I see you looking at your notes. <laughs> yeah, I, I did take notes. The lady from North Carolina asked me, what are you writing? And I said, I'm taking notes because I'm not going to remember all of these things. Um, his sign said, su lucho es mi lucho, which means your struggle is my struggle. Mm. And um, so I talked to him, and then there was another black man. I knew he was black, but he had long braids and had a cross and had on a couple of things that indicated to me that he was Native American. So I walked up to him, and I said, which tribe do you belong to? I I was sure that he belonged Mm -hmm. to a tribe. He said, I'm Cherokee. Thank you for asking. Wow. And so I talked to him for a few minutes, and then I talked to other people. I talked to just about somebody in just about every black sorority, every black fraternity. There were black veterans organization group there, and I talked to them and took a picture of them. And PFLAG, GLBTQ organization was there. So I also mm-hmm. went up and talked to them, and they gave me a flag. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, I was trying to remember. There was just so many people and so many speakers and things going on. But I, I tried to take in as much as I could. It was a lot to take in. So true diversity at this event. And I find this really interesting because when, when we spoke before your trip, you talked about how you were 13 years old at the time of the march and you had actually wanted to attend, but your mother said no. So this was kind of you revisiting that idea of being there. It was. Now, at the march in 1963, I understand there were 250,000 people. I don't know the count of this march yet. Certainly, there were not 250,000. And I tried to take a picture of the whole area to show approximately, you know, the the crowd. And um, it wasn't like shoulder to shoulder all the way back to Tidal Basin, all the way back, you know, from the 
Lincoln Memorial all the way back to the um, monument. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that crowded, but still there were a lot of people, and they, there were thousands of people, but not 250,000. And I know your mom did not want you to attend because she was concerned about violence, and obviously this anniversary commemoration was also a very peaceful march and rally. It was. It was, it was very peaceful. It was quiet except people applauding and shouting out when the speakers would say something that touched them, you know, then people would affirm what they were talking about. But it was a peaceful event. Of course, this journey for you was in tribute to your mother, Ruth Cousins Denny. And of course, she was there with you in spirit. But did you bring anything or wear anything special to the march in honor of her? You know, I thought about it, but I was so felt pressured for time that I didn't really look for something. And that's the conclusion that I came to. I said, she's with me in spirit. And that's what really matters, mm-hmm. that I know that she's with me in spirit. And I know that she knows that I, I still carry on what she was carrying. Remind us again why it was so important for you to go to D.C. and physically stand where your mother and 200,000 plus others stood 60 years ago. I'm I'm still in the process of trying to honor her. I think she felt that people weren't aware of all the hard work that she put in and how she dedicated her life to equality and social justice issues. And so I'm still working on that. I'm trying to make sure that I fulfill my promise to her that she would not be forgotten and the work that she did would not be forgotten. And speaking of which, we are going to delve into some of the work that your mother did. But back to the program first. So it was a five-hour program, and it featured dozens of high-profile speakers who spoke about issues like systemic racism, hate speech, hate crimes, police brutality, gun violence, poverty, the loss of voting rights, and a rollback of reproductive rights. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s own son and namesake, he was among the presenters. Who stood out for you in terms of those who spoke? Andrew Young was there. Former U.N. ambassador and mayor of Atlanta. Right. And he spoke and he advised everyone to not to be angry Mm. because anger doesn't solve anything. And instead to organize, which is the same thing that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, I think, advocated is that we organize. We have to organize, which is what people did. During the civil rights movement, there was a lot of organization. And there still is some, but um, we still have the same problems. And so we just got to continue to organize and to collaborate. There's so many organizations that are fighting discrimination, trying to solve social justice issues, but we all need to talk to one another and collaborate. Did this experience attending the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington live up to your expectations? I would say it did. It did. We listened to all the speakers. And by the way, it was more than five hours. (laughs) They ran late. Oh, wow. So (laughs) that was probably what was planned. (laughs) Yeah, it was five hours was planned. And some of us start looking at our watches when we were (laughs) at the sixth hour, at the sixth hour, and we still hadn't finished listening to all the speakers. And it was so hot out there, that which is why we kept looking at our watches, the heat more than anything else. But, um, yeah, the the march, the whole event was 
as much as I expected or even more than I expected, I would say. And then once all of the speakers had finished, then they said, well, we're going to line up over there and, you know, and actually march. We're going to march to the Martin Luther King Monument. Mm. And so um, so I ran up so I could try to get near the front. And uh, I was within arm's reach of, of um, Reverend Al Sharpton, but the security was really tight. Mm. And uh, so I kind of got pushed back a little bit. I'm of small stature. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, even one lady next to me said, oh, my goodness. She said, you, you poor thing, you know. <laughs> As and, they say, vertically challenged, right? <laughs> I'm vertically challenged. And somebody had a big backpack on. They turned to the left, and the backpack hit me and almost knocked me down. <laughs> so, But I just kept going. And so we marched to the uh, Martin Luther King Monument, and then the King family came up and spoke again because they had spoken earlier when we were at the Lincoln Monument. And they spoke again, and Reverend Sharpton spoke again. I couldn't stay out in that heat any longer. And it was really over. The event was over. So um, so you've had this moment. You've essentially walked in your mother's footsteps. Has this experience changed you in any way? I would say that it has revitalized or given me more energy to continue social justice work because it's, it's hard. And it's tiring, but it's never ending. And I'll add to that that when I got back to the hotel, I went up and I turned on the evening news. And that's when I heard about the shooting in in Florida of the three black people by the white extremist. And I literally just sat on the bed and cried. I, I just cried. I, I And I thought, why am I crying? And I thought, I'm crying for all of humanity. Because when I just thought to myself, and I said when is this going to end? When are we going to do something about all of the hatred in this country and hatred even in the world for people that are different than ourselves? And it just it just broke my heart. To, and I know that we, we hear shootings every day. It's become commonplace, and that's what's not a good thing, that it becomes commonplace that we just accept it. Oh, well, here's another shooting. We, we've just got to, we've got to really rise up and try to make a difference and and make some changes, which is really, really hard work. Speaking of rising up, your mother was Ruth Cousins Stinney. She was a Black teacher based in Denver who endured racism and misogyny herself here in Colorado, but she never let that stop her. Remind us again of some of the impactful social justice work that your mother carried out here in Colorado. Well, she was the chairperson at one point of the Congress of Racial Equality in Denver and helped organize and fundraise for buses to go to the March on Washington in 1963. And she also was an organizer and participant in picketing King Super Safeway, Denver Dry Goods, which is now Macy's, for Zone Cab, discriminatory hiring. And she also worked with the black teachers about discrimination in the Denver public schools. Uh, So she would meet with them and talk with them. She mentored one of the black teachers I've talked to. She's retired now, but she became a principal, and she attributes that to my mother's work and Mm -hmm. my mother's mentoring. You, of course, are a retired Denver County Court judge, but your mom actually wanted to be a lawyer, but she didn't feel that that was something she could achieve as a black woman at that time in America. Right. She she wanted to be a lawyer, and I didn't know that until I was 
away at Lincoln University and HBCU in Jefferson City, Missouri. Historically black college. Yeah. And I called and told her there were people on campus talking about law school. And she said, oh, that's what I wanted to do, but I couldn't in my time. And I think it would have been hard for her because of being a woman, because of being black, and because of being poor. They didn't have money. You know, my my grandmother was a widow with five young children, and there was no way to have money um, for someone to go to law school. How did knowing that your mom wanted to be a lawyer impact your decision to pursue a career in law? Um, I had always wanted to do things to help people. In fact, I went to school with it in my mind that I was going to be a social worker and save the world. <laughs> but, and I actually got my, my bachelor's degree in sociology. But after talking with her, and this is before I had finished the four-year degree, I thought, well, I'm, I think I will apply to law school and see what I can do about fulfilling her dream. And so I did it. It was hard. It was a long struggle, but I, I did it. And You also are very modest and almost underplay all of the community work that you've done here in Colorado. Now that this journey to D.C. is complete, like they say, mission accomplished, Mm -hmm. what's next for you, Judge Briscoe? I will still be working on maintaining and trying to complete the legacy of my mother. There's already some of her documentation at the Blair Caldwell Library, the Ruth C. Denny collection, and I have more things to give to the library. But as you know, they just recently had their grand reopening after remodeling. And they are located in the historic Five Points community of Denver. Correct. And so at some point I will be giving them more things from the Congress of Racial Equality and things uh, that my mother had collected over the years because she she kept many things, many, many things. They are now artifacts that we all can enjoy. Right. As we wrap up, any final thoughts you want to share? I had said earlier that I hope that we have a new awakening. I know we keep hearing that word woke, stay woke. We need a, a new awakening mm. of how serious things really are. And I think most people are aware of how serious things are, the political climate in this country. And it's, uh, it's really frightening. It's frightening and very concerning for our children. What are we going to leave for our children if we don't do something and try to right some of these wrongs and, and fight against injustice? My mother's message would be to keep on struggling and fighting and to never give up, because that's what she had said in one of her tape recordings. As long as I'm on this earth, I will never give up. Judge Briscoe, thank you. Thank you. That was retired Denver County Court Judge Diane Briscoe speaking with us about her recent trip to Washington, D.C. to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. It was a journey she took in honor of her mother, civil rights activist Ruth Cousins Denny, who attended the original march in 1963. Judge Briscoe says she made a pledge to her mother before she died that she would ensure that her legacy of social justice work here in Colorado and beyond would never be forgotten. One way she is doing that is by gathering and donating some of the many mementos her mother collected over the years. She shared many of them with us during a recent visit to her Southeast Denver home. 
Wow, Judge Briscoe, you have a lot of mementos related to your mom laid out here on your kitchen island. Tell us about this. This is a medal that was given to her by Mayor Hancock for all of her service that she's given to the Denver community over the years. It says, delivering a world-class city where everyone matters. Right. And this is a, an award that was given to her. It's the Martin Luther King Jr. Humanitarian Award presented to my mother, Ruth Denny, by the Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission in celebration of Martin Luther King holiday. And this was in 1995. And then also with this award is this little statue of Martin Luther King. Um, Mm. It's pretty heavy. That says, I have a dream, Martin Luther King Jr. This is the Juanita Gray Community Service Award presented to my mother on February the 7th, 2004 by the Denver Public Library. Again, it's for community service. And then next to that is a Living Legend Award given to her um, that says, you make us walk taller, smile wider, dream bigger. You change the world with fierce determination, effortless style, and unshakable grace. Thank you for showing us how to fly by flying, March 21st, 2009. And I believe that was given by the Urban Spectrum. Wow, that's awesome. The Urban Spectrum newspaper covering um, communities of color here in Colorado. Right. And then this next one is 2014 Blacks in Colorado Hall of Fame Award, Ruth Cousins Denny. Yeah, beautiful glass mini sculpture here almost. And then this one, um, it's uh, a sculpture by Ed Dwight, the, oh, the famed sculptor. worldwide known sculptor from Denver, who was one of the, the first black astronaut, I believe. And this says, Ruth Cousins Denny, 2012, Timeless Legends. So mm. that was a big dinner given, and uh, my mother did attend that dinner, and this award was given to the women who were awarded at that time. And you also have pictures of her over different stages of her life. So this is starting with her as a child, and you said in St. Louis. Correct. That's a picture of her as a little girl in the yard in St. Louis, Missouri, where she was born and where I was born, and my brother was born there also. And we moved to Denver in 1951 when I was like a year and a half old. Wow. And my brother was three And then the other side of this is a picture of her graduating from Harris-Stowe Teachers College, which is still in St. Louis, Missouri. I think they've renamed it, but that was where she got her teaching degree. This is a picture of your mom when she was teaching in Denver Public Schools. Right, but this was her later years of teaching before she retired. And then this other picture is when she's already retired, when she's in her 80s. Wow. And she has on a bright yellow jacket and a floral scarf and her white hair that everyone knew her by her hair. (laughs) And uh, she loved colors. And so she loved wearing colors. Always incorporating colors into her attire. In her attire. But we used to tell her um, we could find her if we were in a shopping center (laughs) by just looking for her hair because she had stark white hair. I'm sure that was helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Which now I have the same hair. (laughs) Wow, passing it on. Yeah. And so this is a picture of my mother with James Baldwin, the famous worldwide known author, and with Alice Reynolds and James Reynolds. Um, James Baldwin was in Denver, and he was brought to Denver by the Congress of Racial Equality for a fundraising dinner, and they raised funds for CORE. 
mm. Congress of Racial Equality. And they, I believe they took at least two bus loads, the big like Greyhound type buses to the March on Washington in 1963. Wow, what a piece of history. Yeah. And so this is a picture from the Denver Post where my mother was interviewed and she's holding up her Congress of Racial Equality membership card. Um, she was very proud of being a member of the Congress of Racial Equality. In fact, she was the chairperson at one time of the Congress of Racial Equality in Denver. And we believe we've done some research and that she was the only woman throughout the United States who chaired the Congress of Racial Equality in a particular city. And it says here, a quote, it is a moral obligation to myself. Right. That was her quote that she believed she had to do the work of trying to get equality um, and non-discrimination for everybody. That was and her life. It's also interesting because you stated that your interest in going to the March on Washington anniversary is about justice. Right. And what really kind of spurred this was in 1963, when um, she was preparing to go to the March on Washington, I asked, could I go? Mm. And I was 13. And she said no. And I was a very obedient child and a shy child. And I didn't say why. I just said, okay, that's what she said. No means no. Mm. But later, when she was in her 80s, and she became homebound, and I would see her every day. I would visit her and talk to her on the phone every day. And one day I went in her bedroom and I said, I'm just wondering why didn't you allow me to go to the March on Washington? And she said, because there were rumors there would be violence. Mm. And I didn't want to take a child with the risk of there being violence. Always a mom. Yep. She was a mom protecting, a protective mom. And so we didn't talk a whole lot more about it at that time. And now looking back, because she's gone, I can think of lots of questions I would like to ask her that I didn't ask. Mm. Um, because then I start thinking, how, how did they manage that? I mean, there were 250,000 people in 1963 at the March on Washington. And I thought, where did all the people stay? And then it dawned on me this morning, I said, probably they stayed in the bus, in the buses that they, that they came in across country. Where else were they going to stay? Exactly. Uh, because um, obviously they were fighting for the ability to stay anywhere in America. Yeah. So, and obviously, even if, even if it's just a lot of people all at one time. So yeah, you think yeah. about um, the sacrifice, I mean, sleeping on a bus mm -hmm. and then being at a march all day. Yeah. And, and then riding back to wherever you came yeah, from. Yeah, driving all the way across country mm -hmm. from Denver to Washington, D.C. That's a long drive mm. on a bus. And Absolutely. those days they didn't have the air conditioning like we have now <laughs> and the comforts that we have now. Buses were not as comfortable then as they are now. So even a sacrifice to come and have their voices heard in D.C. by their presence, but that included another sacrifice. Right, right. But my mother and the other core members, and there's still a couple of them alive in Denver, and I intend to make appointments with them and go and talk with them because I haven't seen them or talked to them in a long time. But um, I was, because I want to always say she wasn't the only one. There were, she, you know, there was a group of people here in core, but she was a leader of core, and she made such a great impression on my life and on the lives of some of the Denver public school teachers because she worked with the the black teachers and the Hispanic teachers about being treated with respect and dignity and having rights and being paid the same as white teachers and getting the 
good assignments to different schools because basically, like her first assignment was at a black school and a poor school. You know, that's in fact that's where she taught her whole mm. 26 years wow. in a predominantly black and Hispanic children from very poor families. So really having to navigate a lack of resources in her career. Right, because just like now, a lot of teachers have to buy their own supplies and, you know, and supplement, and they don't have money, you know. And she tried to become a teacher in the Denver Public Schools um, three times. She applied, and each time she applied, they would tell her no and give her a different excuse of why they wouldn't hire her, because back in those days, it was hard to be hired if you were a teacher of color. But she was persistent, and that was the way she was, Mm -hmm. very persistent person and determined. And something tells me her daughter got a lot of that, too. <laughs> I, you know, I, I sometimes, now that I'm older, because like I said, I've been a very shy person and I keep a lot to myself. But as I get older, I, I, sometimes I say, oh, my goodness, after I've said something. And I said, oh, that's Ruth Denny coming out in me. <laughs> when I become very direct or very disturbed or uh, because of something that I think is wrong. And I I do get a little hyped up there, so. (laughs) Like mother, like daughter, huh? (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. So this is a magazine that used to come out in Denver called In the Black. It was Colorado's African-American business magazine. And she was featured in this magazine um, because she was still working on discrimination and and making sure that the Congress of Racial Equality and the whole freedom movement was memorialized and not forgotten. And this is an article from the Denver Post where it's a picture of her with her hand up to her forehead, she's much older here, saying that the civil rights struggle continues um, and that the Denver activists say that they fear the gains have been lost. This smaller picture on this same article in the Denver Post, it was in January 18, 1998, shows her in the classroom, in the class uh, elementary wow. school where she was teaching. So, yeah. and, you, and you just have various articles here. Right. And also, what is this? Uh, a letter from the House of Representatives from Washington, D.C. Yeah, this was a letter from Diana DeGat, April 28, 2012, wishing her the best and continued success. And this was based on her receiving the award from the Denver Urban Spectrum as a timeless legend. I also see a letter from the Urban League Guild. Right. My mother started the Urban League Guild. She was a member of the Urban League nationally and the Denver Urban League. And then she said, we need to have a guild. So she started a guild, which were women who supported the Denver Urban League. And then she started what she called the Denver Stars, I believe it is, where they highlighted high school students throughout Denver in the arts. So they had high school students sing, read poetry, compose poetry, dance, play instruments, and they had an actual showcase where the public was invited to encourage these young people in the arts. Yeah. Also see some handwritten letters here. That's my writing where I was talking to her and asking her things about our family because then I started this whole genealogy thing, which I haven't nearly completed at all, but that's a goal of mine is to complete um, as far as I can. I know that I knew my grandmother. She was a domestic, and she was widowed when my mother and her other four siblings were very small children. In fact, she had a new baby, my grandmother, my youngest uncle, 
at that time. And uh, she worked for a very wealthy white family, the Rands in St. Louis, who owned the International Shoe Company. And um, in fact, my grandfather was the chauffeur for that family, and he caught pneumonia, and they sent him and the family to Arizona hoping that he would get well, but he didn't. He died in Arizona, and then my grandmother came back with these five small children as a widow, came back to St. Louis and raised them. And this began my mother's whole thing of injustice. She was five or six years old. My grandmother had worked all day long in the mansion as a domestic and a nanny, and my mother and grandmother were going to the market to get some food, I suppose, and the clerk would not wait on my grandmother. And my mother was only five or six years old, and she stood up and said, my mother is next. And she was wow. just very angry that she could see that her mother wasn't being treated with dignity. And Even what, at that young age. She was only five or six, and that's where she really started becoming angry, as she said, later in later adult years. She, she was asked in an interview, what kept you going? And she said, because I've always had this deep down anger. And she says, until this day, I don't think I've gotten rid of all of the anger of the mistreatment of people and discrimination. Wow, some pretty impressive collection of mementos here that um, could fill a museum almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what prompted me also, besides being the keeper of all of these documents and things from her, is um, when she was in her 80s, and I would visit her, and by then, 89, she was homebound. And she was very upset one day because she felt like she had not been treated with dignity and respect on a project that she started. She was really upset, and I just said to her, I said, don't worry. I said, I'm going to write a book about your life, which I haven't completed yet. I did start it, and I will make sure that your name is in Colorado history, and you will not be forgotten, and that's the promise I made to her, and so far I've done pretty well on the promise. She was uh, inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame this past March, Mm. And that meant a great deal to me and my family because now her name really is in the history of the state of Colorado. And I, as I said, I've given some documents and things to the Blair Caldwell Library, and I plan to give more of this collection to the library to make sure that, that she's not forgotten. And hopefully people will, when I'm dead and gone, <laughs> know about her, and some young person will have an interest and, and look and see things about her life. Because we all stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. We all do. And sometimes things are better for us, like I became a judge because of my mother. And there's other, many other black judges in Colorado now, black attorneys. You know, we're, black people in general, we have jobs that we never would have had when my mother was in her heyday, so to speak. And our young people need to know that it didn't just happen that way, that there were people who sacrificed, who worked hard, so that they could have the opportunities that they have now. Hmm. And that's how they are where they are. It's not just because they're wonderful people. They are probably wonderful people, but <laughs> there were people who sacrificed and didn't have, didn't have the opportunity. There was just no way they could, it, the doors weren't open. 
retired Denver judge Diane Briscoe, sharing the memories and lasting legacy of her mother, a teacher and civil rights advocate here in Colorado, Ruth Cousins Denny. Increasingly, Coloradans are stepping out to their cars only to find that their vehicle is not there. It's been towed, even if they'd parked legally. Lawmakers passed a towing bill of rights last year to fight predatory towing, and today it enters a new phase. So far, it seems that this effort to rein in towing is not really working. Well, not yet. Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook talked about it with CPR's Matt Bloom. What has happened in recent years is the state has started to get a large volume of complaints from drivers saying they believe their car was towed illegally. And a big part of that is one company in Metro Denver called Wyatt's Towing. In just the past two years, they've had more than a thousand complaints filed against them. And a lot of those complaints are from people who parked in their neighborhood after a day at work or parked going over to their friend's house to have dinner. They are residential areas. And legislators noticed this problem and decided that they needed to do something about it because people have seen such a large uptick in the number of tows happening in their neighborhoods near their homes. Didn't a lawmaker who was actually working on this issue get towed this week? Yeah. Senator Julie Gonzalez, who lives in Denver, went to a fundraiser and afterwards went out to get nachos with a friend. And when she went to pick up her car, she realized it had been towed. That's incredible. When she went to the tow yard to pick it up, she realized through that experience that this giant legislation that she had passed the year before really wasn't being followed. And what that said to her was, you might be told you have to pay the full amount of your tow bill to get your car back. And that could prevent you from picking up your car if you can't afford it. That's one of the things they tried to do with the bill. Interesting. So you're also reporting that the state is now investigating towing companies? Yeah. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser announced that he is investigating Wyatt's towing. They have received the most complaints out of any towing company in Colorado. And that's pretty remarkable that Colorado's attorney general is speaking publicly about an ongoing investigation into a business. Usually, consumer complaint investigations are kept very hush-hush until the end. But because of the large amount of complaints against Wyatt's, Colorado's Attorney General has decided to talk about this. And if Colorado's Attorney General finds out that Wyatt's has been breaking the law, their business license could be at risk and they could see some huge fines from the state. Hmm. What's going on today? There's a regulatory meeting about towing companies. What could be the result of that today? The top regulatory agency in Colorado for towing companies is adopting all the new rules laid out in a law that passed last year. 
And that's important because that means the state of Colorado can now start to slap big fines on towing companies and they could lose their business license in Colorado. And it's helpful to know that if your car gets towed and you go to pick it up, you don't have to pay the full amount in Colorado to get your car back. You only have to pay 15% of the bill initially to get your keys, get your car back in your possession. And another thing that the new rules dictate is you also don't have to take out a loan to get your car back in Colorado. There's just a lot of new protections for consumers going into effect that are really helpful for people to know, especially if you are on a really tight budget. Matt Bloom, thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. CPR's Matt Bloom talking with Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook. Another part of the new Towing Bill of Rights law is that towing companies must provide 24 hours notice before towing a vehicle parked on residential properties. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Before the gold rush, Colorado did have boom towns. One of the first was ideally situated where the Arkansas River spills onto the Great Plains. In the autumn of 1842, fur trappers and their families built an adobe fort there, and by the next spring, there was a settlement. As mountain man Jim Beckworth recounted, we gave it the name Pueblo. The word means both village and people, and has been used to name permanent villages of many native communities across the Southwest. Eventually, this Pueblo would attract people from all directions, especially when the steel mills came to town. Pueblo became one of the most diverse cities in the West, with steelworkers speaking more than 40 languages and dozens of newspapers keeping them informed, including El Colorodeño in Spanish, La Voce de Popolo in Italian, Pueblosque Novice in Slovenian, and for a few years in the 1880s, the English language, and aptly named, Pueblo Welcome. A Colorado postcard from CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There are dog people, cat people, and in Colorado, a growing number of yak people. Yes, you heard that right. The shaggy cattle are typically found in the Himalayas, but are becoming increasingly popular in this state, too. CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, spoke to a family of yak ranchers in Ridgeway about how they came to share their lives with their beloved bovines. Imagine the love child of a cow and a woolly mammoth. Yaks are very cute, very hairy, and pretty quiet. Mostly. Namgya Sherpa loves to look out on the herd, lounging in rugged pasture, craggy mountain peaks in the distance. If you have a bad day or something, and if you see those little one, and then, you know, it's like a kind of meditation for you. The ranch, Smiling Buddha Yaks, is home to about 30 or so, mamas, babies, and bulls. And this morning, Namgya is helping brush out the adults, including Sita, with a big white mop of fur flopped over her eyes under U-shaped horns. You're a pretty girl, Sita. Namgya's adopted parents, Ruth Higdon and Peter Hackett, the owners of the ranch, pat the yak's black-and-white shag carpet of a body. Look at that, how fluffy that coat is now instead of matted. With a long skirt that almost hits the ground. The ranch is about a decade old, but its origins go back to the 1970s, when Peter was a volunteer doctor in Nepal. He saw how enmeshed yaks were in Sherpa life, 
used to transport goods and people, used to make rope, even dairy products. So I was just totally entranced by the culture and the relationship with this animal. Peter opened a clinic in Nepal, in Namgya's hometown. Very small town, maybe less than 10 houses. And in that village, there was a Sherpa couple, Mingma and Namdu, that had three kids. Namgya and his sisters. And I was helping them out with uh, clothes and things. I'd bring over from the States when i go back and forth. Then, in 1981, the kids lost both their parents in the same summer. He was a good friend with my parents, and after my parents passed away, then he kind of helped us to go to school. To go to school in Nepal. Eventually, though, Peter helped all three come to the U.S. He did everything for us. In the decades that followed, Peter found part of his heart was still in Nepal and with its signature animal. I'd always go to see yaks at any zoo I went to. Then one day, when Peter was visiting Alaska, he and Ruth found each other. We met on Denali at 12,000 feet. He was coming down. She was going up. Kind of meant to be, I guess you could say. Faded. Ruth, also a doctor, had also spent time in Nepal and had also fallen hard for yaks. At the time, she was running a business where she'd hike into the wilderness with clients, with yaks as their calm companions and pack animals, more nimble than cows and far hardier. Just loved walking with the yaks. It's just a, a really special experience. And then she fell hard for Peter, too, with one condition. I said, I have to have yaks, so we've, we found some. At first... Peter was going, what? <laughs> but he was all for it. Now it's their life. Smiling Buddha Yaks is one of dozens of yak ranches across Colorado, in Montrose and Macus, Crawford and Colorado Springs. While some focus on the animals' rich milk and lean meat, here it's all about breeding, making fluffy, fuzzy babies that look as much like teddy bears as calves. After the moms are brushed, the duos lumber and sprint into the sweet shade of scrub oak. Well, I certainly never would have guessed I'd end up here. (laughs) But it it all kind of makes sense as a natural progression. For Peter, Ruth, and Namgya. I love it, yeah. While his sisters have opted for lives in New York and Grand Junction, Namgya wants to stay right here with his wife and son. It feels like back home in Nepal, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. At home in the mountains, at home with the yaks. In Ridgeway, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. When a novel has a strong sense of place, that place becomes a character of its own. And that's absolutely the case with the book we've chosen to read together. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Go as a River is our latest pick for our Turn the Page with Colorado Matters series. It takes place in Iola, Colorado, which was wiped off the map to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. Go as a River is set in the years before the town was slowly evacuated, then flooded. The book explores the displacement of indigenous people in the West. Author Shelley Reed had already begun writing it when a drought in 2018 exposed Iola beneath Blue Mesa Reservoir. 
And I think it was very painful for the people who had lived there and had been evacuated to see the remnants of the place that they loved reemerge. No one ever thought we would see that again. So pick up a copy of Go as a River by Shelley Reed, then join Ryan Warner on the Western Slope September 13th. He'll interview her on stage at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. Tickets are free. Just sign up at CPR.org slash turn the page. Finally today, music from a one-of-a-kind venue. In Rangeley on the Western Slope, there's an old empty water tank that's seven stories tall. Inside, the acoustics are, well, remarkable. It's emerged as a recording destination for local and visiting musicians. Slow Beethoven is the latest work produced at the tank. A string quartet played Beethoven's Opus 131 at a dramatically slow tempo, one-seventh of the normal speed. That allowed lush chords to linger. A seven-minute piece took more than 45 minutes to play. As you may hear, the long reverberations make for an otherworldly sound, part Beethoven, part something entirely new. That was Slow Beethoven, recorded at the Tank Center for Sonic Arts in Rangeley, Colorado. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.